0: Blob Talk Radio,
1: live from Washington D.C. It's quintessential listening poetry online radio, QLPOR as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. Tonight's program will be different. We're showcasing the work of author Kevin Ligte. He will read from his new fiction novella, The Circle That Fits. Hello, Kevin. Welcome to QLPOR. Hello.
2: Thank you for having me. (laughs)
1: Oh, you're more than welcome. I'm glad you're with me. I'm looking forward to hearing you read. But what I'd like to do first is ask you a few questions about the process. I'd like to know first, why do you write, Kevin?
2: I write because um, I think I've always always written. Um, so I wrote my first story when I was five, um, and I've been telling stories ever since I can remember um, – Some of my earliest memories are being read to um, and the magic of those stories and the the sounds of the words and the pictures. Um, And so it's always been a part of me. Um, So even when I wanted to do other things like become a herpetologist or an astrophysicist or (laughs) any of the myriad other things that I wanted to do as a kid, um, reading, um, writing stories, inventing stories, going into the woods and finding out where creeks are going while telling stories to myself and inventing worlds um, is just something I've always done. So it's just something right. that's part of
0: <laughs>
1: All right. Now, do you come from a literary background?
2: Um, I know my mom wanted to, she studied English. She never finished her degree, but I know she studied English um, in college. Um, and I think she wanted to be, an English teacher and a, and a writer, and it never really sort of materialized. But um, other than that, I actually come from a music family more than anything else. My dad was a professional singer. Um, he mm. sang opera and classical music. Um, uh, uh, and everyone in my family plays an instrument. My brother plays the drums. My sister plays the clarinet. And my younger brother plays the
1: guitar. Um, and I write. <laughs> All right. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. The circle that fits. What inspired
0: your book, my friend? Um. Well,
2: a little bit of everything. Um. So. My family also um, used to sell funnel cakes. Um. Goes back three generations. Uh, of funnel cake sellers, um, and uh, various different fairs. Um, so that was part of it. Um, but of course, it's not, autobi- it's not really autobiographical. It's completely fictional. Um, some of the characters were inspired by some of the people that I met as a child um, selling funnel cakes in different fairs and different um, craft fairs. Um, but they are mm-hmm. also completely invented at the same time. Um, and it sort of invented itself as it went. Um, so it started off as an experiment. Um, the character Daniel sort of grew out of that experiment. And then as I went, um, his journey, his arc, his story, his worldview, his cadence, all of that sort of grew on its own as I was sort of discovering it. Um, so it kind of starts a little bit with my own personal experiences with the fair um, and just being a child in the, in the 80s uh, at a time where things were a lot more dangerous uh, and, less regulated. Um, and then it just sort of grew out of that.
0: All
1: right. So what does the title mean? So the title
2: the, actually, the title, it kind of has dual meaning. So the first one is um, the circle uh, imagery of the novella um, as a metaphor kind of permeates so much of the storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why, so the Ferris wheel is always at the center and the Ferris wheel is a giant circle. Um, all of the carnival rides uh, move in loops and in circles. Um, as a traveling carnival, we move in loops and circles. And so there's all of these various different orbits, right? And gravity um, that pulls each pulls us together or, or breaks us apart, right? And we spin out in all of these different circles. So the circle is kind of a metaphor for the arc and the story of the book. But the circle that fits actually comes out of music theory. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the idea of the chord progression in any kind of a song. Um, as you're moving through, um, if you think about all of the various different chords that you have available to you in the circle, the circle that fits is the chord progression inside of any song. And that's how oh, wow. well, those chords fit within that circle. And so that's also sort of thematic um, to the book as well, right? So Daniel's making this circle that fits him.
1: All right, very nice. You know, the, the cover of your book is quite striking. And it brought back a lot of memories to me about a circus. So tell us about the process for coming up with the cover of the book.
2: <laughs> so um, the the editor, um, he asked me if I had any ideas about the cover. Um and the only thing that the only direction that I gave him and the artist was that I wanted to I wanted it to look like the cover of the book was illuminated um because the lights um illumination and darkness is also a big sort of theme of the book as well so I was like I really would love if we could figure out a way to make it look like the cover is illuminated in some way um and then um the editor gave that to the artist and the artist came up with this gorgeous
1: cover. It's beautiful. It's quite striking. You know, as we move into tonight's program, what should listeners prepare to hear tonight? What are you going to treat us with?
2: So I'm going to introduce the listeners to the main sort of characters. And so this is a very i would I would say it's a very language heavy um, very um character heavy um, story, and so um, what you will hear it's actually um a lot the way that a lot of people describe my writing is that, that is a story that sounds like a poem um, so even though it is fiction, even though it is prose, I hope that they hear the poetry in the cadence and the music of the language. Um, And they're probably also going to, in terms of content, they're probably also going to hear a bit of a surreal understanding of the world and a very highly sort of emotional um, experience of the world from the narrator, who is Daniel.
1: Very nice. Well, everyone, now it's time to settle in and listen to Kevin read from The Circle That Fits. All right, Kevin.
0: All right.
2: Most people think you start with a circle, close the space off so you can create inside of it, but Dad said starting with the circle is a mistake. A circle collapses without the scaffold of the eight to hold it together, and without the eight, everything becomes chaos. Dad said you begin with the figure eight because a figure eight outlines the potential space that might exist. A circle comes second. Define your borders, dad said. He poured quickly from the wrist, but carefully. Without care, he said, you'll get wild arms flying everywhere, a mess. When mom was here, she had helped. She'd stand behind dad and whisk the powder into batter, their two backs pressed against each other. Sometimes I had to crawl between their legs to get from one side of the trailer to the other. At night, She helped me catch fireflies in the fields when it was warm enough, taught me how to cup them in my hands so they would illuminate the spaces between my fingers. We'd sing a song to them, blow into the hollow of our hands and let them go. Most nights, we found Dad sleeping under the fold-away table when we got home. Mom said he slept that way because he spent three years running away from monsters who wanted to eat him in the jungle. And when he had come home, he thought he'd be safe, but he found monsters here too. Sometimes Mom and me would make a circle with our arms and we'd spin and spin until I lifted off the ground and I would fly around the circle of our bodies and feel the world pulling at my feet, trying to pull me away, but mom held on so tight. When dad finished with a funnel cake, he would fish it out with the fryer with a pair of tongs and let it drain before releasing it onto the plate in my outstretched arms. He started to let me powder them when I was seven. And I remembered then that in a clear day, When the sun shone in through the front windows the powdered sugar had looked like stars falling through the cylinder one day my mom let go i remember it like a release like i was unstuck and floating free of everything until i fell to the ground and all the wind was knocked out of me i laid there in the grass for a long time heaving waiting for my mom to come rushing over and pick me up i watched an ant crawl across my arm in circles its antenna waving after a while I stood up and looked around, and she was gone. Dad said he didn't know what happened to her. Told me that the best thing to do is to just draw a circle around my heart and close it in. Here, he said, giving me a funnel. He dragged a stool over to the two friars, looked me in the eye, and patted it. The first thing you have to do is make an eight. People came to watch my dad create. He was a calligrapher, they came to the windows and watched him funnel out galaxies into the oil, his wrists light as air. When he created was both crisp and soft, most people said it melted on their tongues, almost as if nothing was ever there. My dad said it's because he pays more attention to the spaces in between rather than where he's pouring. He said, people don't understand this because most people think a circle comes first, but a
0: circle comes second. Dad said, our trailer wasn't big
2: enough to hold hope. We need the room, he said. We were getting rid of mom's things, grabbing armfuls of clothes and stuffing them into black trash bags. We pulled out the bins of her lipsticks, her body spray, her shampoo. Here, the book she was reading before she left, dog-eared, spine broken in five places, corners of the cover torn away. Here, the bin of her headbands and hair clips to hold back her mass of curls from her face. I took out a clasp, square, pewter-colored, covered in rhinestones. I remember the last time she wore it. It was a Saturday, my eighth birthday. The carnival was open late. She'd said, come on, we're going to be like everyone else tonight. We stepped out of the trailer into the cool together, her hand wrapped around my hand, breathed air thick with the smell of fry oil. We walked through the midway, the clasp in her hair absorbing all the reds and yellows and blues. What do you want to eat, she asked. We walked past everything that was fried, the French fries, the corn dogs, the chicken, the egg rolls, the onion rings, the fried ice cream, the elephant ears, the fried Oreos and Twinkies and candy bars, Bob's Kebabs, I said. His open fire, the skewers of meat, his black char and the peppers. We watched Bob slap the skewers onto the fire, drip down onto the wood, heard it pop, watched the curl of black smoke rise into the sky, watched them turn, and turn, and turn, and lemonade, I said, the kind made by hand. We watched the floating hemisphere of a lemon be pressed into a glass, its clear juice leak in the sugar, white, translucent, gone. We sat under a canopy strung with incandescent lights and ate. She bought me a caramel apple embedded with peanuts. and We walked to the games, and she let me throw darts at balloons, my favorite. Jason gave me the real darts because it was my birthday. I felt the heft of them in my hand. They felt heavy and deadly and beautiful. I want a fuzzy lion hand puppet and a Harley Davidson keychain. Mom told me to hold on to that keychain, hold on to it tight. Someday, we're going to have a key to put it on and a door that will fit it, and you'll have your own bed to sleep in, the same one every night in the same place, and you'll have the same grass to play on and the same friends to play with, and they'll come over and we'll have water fights in the afternoon and have cookouts and make popsicles to the orange juice and toothpicks, And Dad will come home from work, and we'll sit down at a table and eat roasted chicken with fried potatoes every night, and I'll put you to bed and tuck you in, and everything will be the same in the morning. What about the Ferris wheel, I said. You love the Ferris wheel, don't you? Come on, she said. And we went and got into the bucket and held on to the arm bar and rocked as it went higher. We reached the top, and JoJo held us up there so I could look out at the black mass of trees down below, see the roads take away. See the cars moving back and forth the circle of their lights the orange haze from the town's streetlights rising into the black of the sky here mom the tangle of her hair pulled back the clasp she wore shining white in the light of the ferris wheel down below the yellow of our funnel cake sign the white pouring out from the front windows the shadow of dad moving left to right i wanted to say something about the space between there and here between the shadow of dad and the light in mom's hair But I didn't know the words. Instead, the top, or near the top, the Ferris wheel, the dark of the sky, the light on my skin yellow and white, the non-space between mom and me. Just like everyone else, I asked. Just like everyone else, she said. Then the Ferris wheel lurched. And for a moment, as the bucket swung out, I couldn't tell if we were still rising toward the sky or falling back to the earth. Dad came out of the trailer and wheeled out the handcart, packed the bins one by one until the handcart was full. Put that clasp in the bag, too, he said. I'm going to keep this one. There's no room. I can put it in my pocket, I said. I put the clasp in my pocket. That's not how this works. But I don't have anything else, I said. What did I tell you? He crouched all the way to his knees. His knees indented the loose earth beneath them. Come here, he said. I crouched down, too. Draw a circle, he said. We drew until the circles touched each other. Now stand inside, he said. I stood inside my circle, and he stood inside his circle. This is all the room you have now, he said. But it fits in the circle with me, I said. I held a clasp in the palm of my hand. He slapped my hand, and the clasp flew up and burned in the orange shaft of the arc lamps and then fell into the dust. Everything outside of this circle doesn't belong, he said. And then he said, now put the clasp into that bag. I walked over and picked the clasp up. I held it in my palm, felt the heft of it. It felt heavy and deadly and beautiful there. The rhinestones were prisms through my tears.
0: I put it in the bag. Now grab those other trash bags, and that's all of it, he said. Llewellyn, the pony ride man, used to let me feed his ponies
2: sugar cubes in the purple darkness before the sun came. The velvet of the curling around the fingers that pulled the cues into their mouth and crunched. He told me the lips of a pony were like the lips of a woman. And when I said mom's lips weren't like theirs,
0: he said, Not those that you would to me that his pony was the greatest pony in the entire world. I think of a kid after the Walmart day with kids on their backs. He They are f- because
2: they are new. He showed me how the basketball rims were bent to look straight and how the milk bottles were unbalanced so they would never fall at the same time and where the teenage girls gathered behind the arcade tent and pressed their bodies against the men who wandered to them. The only thing the man wants to do is take and take and take, he said. I asked him who the man was and he told me everyone is the man. So are you the man, I asked him. Yes, he said. Llewellyn was a wise man. He was the first one to tell me I didn't need to be a carny, that there was more to this world than the asphalt and dirt and fried food and lights and vomit. He said my dad did what he did because he didn't know how to do anything else, said it was because he couldn't do anything else, because he couldn't exist anywhere else, because no one wanted him to. He said, is that how you want to be? I said, why not? He turned my head and said, look at those ponies one more time. Asphalt was the river we traversed, oil slicked, polluted with drive-through fast food wrappers, convenience store beer cans, truck stop condoms, but sometimes it was also the island we lived on too. Candied and slick with drool and vomit and dust, we made our home there for a week or two. Digging into the asphalt was impossible, so we floated our homes above it, padded our floors with old towels, blankets, furs, old insulation ripped from derelict homes along the side of the highway, egg crate foam. Every morning we woke up together as one, as if it were planned, as if we were a collective, a hive moving in the same internal clock of the carnival. Fuck that, most of us would say. We got up and saw the sun smear across the horizon, a dandelion bloom in the cracks of the asphalt, a grasshopper land on our shoe. Home was here and here and here, and here. I remember the, jo- the day Jojo lost his hand. Jojo had been trying to repair the motor on the Ferris wheel, jamming his entire body against the torque wrench, his face cord strained, his body quivering behind the metal when he slipped. Knuckling under, his arm flung out behind and-, and wedged itself between the teeth, gears when the motor bellowed ground to a start, eating Jojo's hand to the wrist. Listening to the side, he ripped himself free, hands separating from wrist, skin, muscle, and bone like a zipper. Meat hung from the stump, then the blood, overflowing the fingers wrapping around the wrist, poured out onto his chest, inking the flannel red, a wail escaping from his eyes like the eyes of prey, like the realization that the talons had in severed your back with a warning. Near me, Luum pushed through the crowd, ran to JoJo, wrapped a towel around his wrist, cinched it with a leather strap, and pulled tight, Okay, don't look at it, look at me, Llewellyn said. People surrounded them, made a ring of them, but all that did was create a stage with Jojo and Llewellyn at its center. Quiet down, the people told each other. Re-cinching the leather strap, Llewellyn picked me out of the audience, told me to get more towels, so I went to his trailer, gathered a pile of them into my hands, ran back and gave them to Llewellyn, who undid the cinch, replaced the soaked towel with a fresh one and pulled the strap tight around Jojo's wrist again. Taking the saturated towel from the ground, I ran and ran, felt the weight of the blood, felt the blood seep onto my hands, pour down my arms like cords of rope, felt Jojo's blood float off my elbows as I ran like a melting ice cream cone, felt my heart pumping my blood, my blood safe inside still, safe and whole and still bringing oxygen to my hands. I tell Jojo's blood-soaked towel that I held out in front of me like a giblet sack, like an urn under a tree by the castleman, I dropped to my knees, lowered the towel into the current, watched the blood get pulled from it. The viscous cords of coagulate clung to the fibers, danced in the eddies of the river. Water flowed over my wrists, cooled the blood in my hands. Xanthic petals of honeysuckle and dandelion and marigold floated down the river, coated my arms. Yoked to me, I heard the ripping sound of Jojo's hand echo in my ears. Zephyr winds blew a yellow haze of pollen over the river. And then the last main character I'll introduce now and then we can take a break. For five dollars, Wolf took pictures
0: of a <laughs> family with his son. Pictures, really pictures of twins
2: Watch him hold the lions stare, hold his arm out palm down, always down he moved his body wasn't pulled by gravity like his muscles watch that dance the thick chair on the lion scraping across the platform as Rolf moved and the lion's head followed Rolf said the chain was for the parents, not for the lion. Rolf would not tell us where the lion came from, so we made a history Rolf had been a lion tamer's apprentice in a circus, and he watched every night as the ringleader's wife would go into the lion tamer's tent until the rail leader found out and poisoned the lion tamer's lions in revenge, all but one vomiting blood and bile and stomach until they died, or he'd been a zookeeper and stole the lion cub after its mother died in childbirth, or he'd been a merchant marine and bought the lion cub at a cellar in a port of call, and he smuggled it on board his ship and hid it in the machine room Fed its scraps from the kitchen, covered its piss in vinegar, and disappeared with it in the first port of call he could. Llewellyn said, where the lion came from didn't matter. Said the lion was always here, and so always will be. Dad said the goddamn lion was a danger. Said it was going to get the whole carnival shut down one day. Rolf sat down next to me one day, right after Llewellyn had been found. He handed me a grape soda, turned to me, and said the lion just started following me one day. That doesn't make any sense, I said. And he said he used to be an animal control officer and got called in as backup one day to a job that was too big for the responding team. No one told him what was going on. And when he got there, the other officers were frozen on the back porch and he could hear the screams of a woman out somewhere in the wheat colored grass. And he asked the three other officers what was going on. And they told him not to go out there. Told him they used everything they had but they couldn't touch him. And Wall said he went any, out anyway went out into all that swaying grass and he followed the screams until he came upon a man and a woman and a lion and the man's spine was broken and pulled away from his ribcage and the woman was beneath the lion and the lion had his, his claws deep in her thigh and the jaws of his mouth were wrapped around her throat and every time she screamed, the lion tensed and its teeth pressed against the flesh of her neck and he said, the lion was covered in blood around his mouth, in his mane, on his chest and he said, the lion stared at him with his honey-colored eyes, moved them without moving his head, and just held him there in those eyes, in those wheat-colored eyes. What did you do, I asked. And he said, he removed his vest and his shirt and unbuckled his belt and let his pants fall to the ground. And then he moved his boots, removed his boots and his underwear and stood there naked with his arms out, palm downward. And then he said he closed his eyes and walked forward until he walked right into the lion until he could feel the silk of the lion's pelt, feel the warmth of the lion's skin until he buried his face in the lion's mane and then the lion let go and cried.
0: And we can take five. And we are back. I
1: am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Kevin Lickley reading from his book, The Circle That Fits. A couple of questions, Kevin. Yes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> what comes first, <laughs> the plot or the characters when you write? Um, I would
2: say the characters come first. I would say the first thing that happens is um, I get a sense of the characters and then I start getting images Mm -hmm. of um, sort of work or things that are happening and then the music of the language of how to tell that story. And then the story sort of emerges out of sort of discovery of working through um, those images
1: that I'm getting in my head. Um, all right. Well, does one of the characters, one of the main characters, hold a special place in your heart? If so, why? <laughs> I love all of them.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. I love all of them. Um, Every single one of them. The ones who are fine flawed, Um, I love them all. Um, but this story the um, and so he has to be the one that you know. Had favorite it would have to be him, um, mm-hmm. and probably tied with um, are the lion. Speaking lion, but is an amazing character of his own. Llewellyn, uh, the mentor. Um, Llewellyn, as much as Daniel, was responsible for um, uncovering the story, um, and setting the trajectory that it was. Um, but for Daniel, right. it's just Llewellyn, it's, um, you know, one, um, I don't know, I describe him kind of. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that Well, that's sort we of
1: like, are. we yeah, <laughs> were experiencing some technical difficulty. It's uh, oh. very difficult to hear you because it's quite scratchy. How's how's
2: it now? That's a right, lot that. better. Thank that. you,
1: thank you, thank you. That's okay. It happens all, all the right. time on this show. It happens all <laughs> the time, <laughs> literally all the time. Uh, <laughs> what, what other authors are you friends with? And how do they help you become a better writer? Um so uh
2: I would say um Matt Bell. Um and I'm friends with friends with a lot of poets. Um
0: mm-hmm.
2: so Susan Nguyen, um, Reese Connor, Alexandra Camus, um I'm trying to think of some other some other writers I can I can name off the top of my head. Um and all of them are better than me.
0: <laughs> so I don't, I don't not,
2: not based on what I've heard so
0: far. <laughs> well,
2: well, thank you. But in my mind, they're all better than me. And so I'm constantly trying to feel worthy in their presence. Um, and it, mm. it, it, it gets me to, to strive to be, to be better and to figure out. Um, but one thing that, that Matt, you know, always talks about is diving into your own weirdness. In your own mm-hmm. quirks and the things that people odd about what it is that you do. And that's where you really um, um, concentrate all of your attention on. So what are those things that are kind of weird and quirky and odd about your process and what you write and what you love? And that's where you really, really uh, focus all of your attention on and that's how you become a better writer. So that's certainly some advice that I, I try to take on my own. Um, so for me, you know, what I discovered, I was obsessed with kind of like the concept of the found family or the family, the, that kind of like concept that you, you gather your family around. Um, and you don't necessarily have to be um, stuck with the family um, that you were born with if that family turns out to be toxic to you. Um, so All that's right. one of the things that I am obsessed with as sort of content and then um I'm a very you know my eleventh grade english teacher would say i'm i'm a very sensual um you know i, I uh as a as a writer um i lean into um that uh as much as i possibly can and try to pull out the sensual um experience of the world and how i tell the story um, all you
0: know, right well finally
1: Oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, finally, finally, do you believe in writer's block
0: for this section? Oh, do you believe in writer's block?
1: Um,
2: <laughs> um, I certainly believe in writer's procrastination, which I've, okay. I've heard of, that we procrastinate a lot. Yes, but one of the things I would, I what I what I believe in is that, um, and you know, people say that writers write. Um, So what does that mean? To me, reading is writing. Um, Because when I'm reading, I'm learning from the people I'm reading. Um, Thinking is writing. Um, So when I'm thinking through um, a problem that I I can't solve in a story that I'm trying to write, um, that's writing. Experiencing is writing. So you have to experience the world in order to write it. Observation huh. is writing. Um, so As you are people watching in the mall or, or eavesdropping on conversations at a restaurant, um, that's writing. Um, um, research is writing. Because um, you never know what's going to inspire um, a, par- a story or a part of a story or unlock something. Um, that you've been thinking through or puzzling through. Listening to music is writing. Because um, mm-hmm. to me, oftentimes, what I'm trying to do in my writing is recreate that experience of listening to music does to me, which sort of wow. sends a sort of vibration in your body, right? When you hear a really great song, um, your body vibrates. And I'm trying to do that um, in my my writing is to make hopefully reader's body vibrate in certain parts um and hear something when it happens um, and then of course writing is writing <laughs> yes it
1: is <laughs> i agree with that one all right yeah. well kevin it's back to you
2: so um, i'm gonna jump a bit in the novella some of the things that
0: introduced in the first reading but we're also just sort of going to move forward. I'm here a little bit during the day. Dad began
2: and over his back, a vice grip, and his little cake fryers into a, seat, a concentration. When he talked, he said what he needed more, oil, more oil, powder this ten. And this way, we were able to shrink the space between. So need on the jaw, the inner feet, tightness, backs, the people outside in their lines, their face in yellow, their hands created We knew what to do with our hands in our mouths. And if our bodies touched, touched because they had to move in those directions. But at night, after everyone who had needed us left, after the colors of the midway were shut off in the dark in small places, that were left in our trailer, the hard shell dad created during the day liquefied and softened. Sometimes I'd wake up and he'd be under the table curled around its single leg. Sometimes his eyes would be open in the shadows beneath the arc lights staring, the big blue circles of them looking into mine unseeing. In those moments, I was always someone else, mom or aunt Krista or grandpa or someone named Sergeant Brown. And in the universe of his wide blue eyes, I would get sucked into his dreams and nightmares and he would yell and scream, claw and grab and pull me into his chest and squeeze until I couldn't breathe. I told Llewellyn once that mom had told me he got this way because he was being chased by monsters in his sleep. Llewellyn said mom was full of shit, said this wasn't about monsters, that monsters don't take that way, told me to remember it was the man who did. Before, when it got bad, Llewellyn let me sleep with the horses, and I would lay in their straw and listen to their breath in the darkness and hear their hooves shuffle against the ground and watch the mass of their heads moving back and forth, up and down. And sometimes I would put a hand on their neck and push my face into the muscles and breathe them in, breathe in all of their energy and quiet and beauty, or I would put my head, my hand over the soft part of their nose, the velvet of their lips and close my eyes and match my breath to theirs and then sleep. But Llewellyn was gone now. The straw and the shuffling and the breath too. Just dad and me and his wide staring eyes and his dreams in the dark to the common room and poured myself a glass of water and saw dad under the table with his shirt pulled off and wrapped around his eyes. And I could see the heaving of his chest and his red and slicked skin. And I walked over to him and crouched down and held my hand out to his hot, and wet skin, held my hand out towards him like he was a radiator to be warmed by, and he flinched, and I flinched, and our bodies jumped like two magnets fighting against each other. He reached up to the shirt, pulled around his eyes, and pulled it tighter, and he said, no. He said, no, please. And I felt the heat of his body even on the other side of the trailer, the fever of his dream leaking out of him, burning him up, igniting him from the inside. And I remember this used to be mom's job to put her hand on his forehead. So I crouched down and put my head under the table and held my hand out. And he flinched again, but I held my hand steady, held it out to his burning, sleeping body and touched his shoulder, his body like a center of gravity. I fell fell into his orbit. I pulled my hand away and saw the imprint of it on his skin, the white outline of my fingers, and he reached out and grabbed my hair and squeezed. He said, God damn, you motherfuckers. Is this it? Is this it? And he ripped at my hand hand and slapped my head against the ground and held it there, pressed me down like he was trying to push my head through the floor, and I squeezed my eyes shut and reached out and touched his forehead, and he said, No. And he said, Please, and I fell into the cracks Dad made and was rooted. It's okay, I said. It's okay, Dad, it's okay. The next day he wouldn't remember, said so he didn't remember, but his body did. He pulled me closer, pulled me into a searing red-hot orbit and asked me to promise him to never leave, said, this is how it's meant to be, right here, father and son, tradesman, master and apprentice, like the ancients. He picked up his funnel and said, everything you need to know pours out from this. I said, okay, Dad. Can I go outside for a few minutes? He said, sure. I went outside and ran under a tree, and in its shade, I crouched down into the dirt and cupped an ant and pulled him into my hands, and the out Ant felt the map of my hands with its antenna, and I crouched down into the dirt again and picked up another ant and another and another and another until my arms were covered in them and my skin burned with their stings. Every year, we went to Greenbelt for the Labor Day Festival. Around midnight, we would spread out over an asphalt parking lot that was sandwiched between a police station and a community pool, erect the scaffolding of our lights so that on Friday morning, the children and their adults and the adults of their adults could come and ride the hurricane and eat candy apples and funnel cakes and throw up on the zipper and dunk their friends in the pool and kiss beneath the lights of the Ferris wheel and donate to the Maryland Democratic Party who sponsored, sponsored the event and required a party worker to be present inside the booth of every station, 5% to the reelection committee. This meant that every year I worked from midnight to 7 in the morning on Friday and then covered in oil and grease and dust with blood on my knuckles and knees. I would check into the Holiday Inn. This was where I would stay on holiday for the holiday weekend, where I would eat potato skins from room service and swim in a pool already turning to ice and sit in a basement tanning salon and stare at the pictures of the tropical sun behind the counter and talk to the teenagers who worked there who let me sit and talk for no reason and look at the tanning beds like alien seed pods and watch movies in my room until dad came home around one in the morning, covered in the smell of the carnival. He would ask, how did your day go? And I would say good, and he would eat cold pizza he brought back in a box, gone translucent with grease, and then fall asleep on the same bed. I took my key from the front desk man, who stared sideways at his manager after I'd told him I forgot my key again, and carried my tiny suitcase up to whatever floor my room was on, the higher the better. In the room... I peeled off my clothes and threw them on the floor and I turned on the air conditioner to high and stood in front of the window and looked down at the green belt of trees around the mall and the highway and the Denny's and the office building across from me and cooled the slick from my skin. And then I opened my tiny suitcase and found my bathing suit, the red one with the Superman symbol on the butt, and put it on. And then in the secret pocket cut in the bottom of my suitcase, I felt for the lace of a ribbon, pulled it out, unthreaded mom's clasp. Tiny and square and pewter and covered it in rhinestones, and walked out of my room. Took the elevator to the basement floor and stepped out, dark and beautiful and mine. I padded across the concrete floor, past the laundry room, the pipes, supply closet up the stairs and out onto the pool deck. Walked to the deep end, heard the water clack, clack against the skimmer, the air on my bare chest, already autumn chill. Pulled the goose flesh out around my nipples. There, there was never anybody else there? My ritual. I would hold Mom's clasp in my hand and drop it down into the water and watch its distorted rhinestones shine in the deep and watch me back. I would stand on the no diving sign and breathe and breathe. Dive in and kick my feet and down I went. The pop in my ears, the rough concrete bottom as I closed my fingers around the clasp and surfaced, heaving in a shivered chest of air. I would climb out and I would throw it in again dive, retrieve, surface. The water would pull me down heavier each time, so I would throw it farther away, dive down longer, stay on the bottom longer, feel the mute of everything under the surface, the closeness of everything, hold the clasp in my hand and open my eyes and watch the surface ripple the sky above me. I came up for air and a girl was standing on the edge of the pool, watching her bleached hair, the curve of her hips, the space, where her legs met the red of her suit. You were down there a pretty long time, she said. Yeah, I said. What's your name? Daniel, I said. My name is Amy. Hi, Amy. You here by yourself? I held up the clasp. The rhinestones glittered in the sun. I shook my head. My mom, I said. My earliest memory is of a bonfire. I can feel the heat from it now pulling at the skin on my face the blue at the center. In this memory, I still thought the blue was a ball of cold compressed down by all the heat around it. I know now that the blue at our center is heat compressed into heat. Our bonfires run together, orange glowing ash twining and rising up from our bodies. I feel them in my body. I carry them everywhere I go. They are the waypoints of my memories. They stretch back and back Ash rubbed and stained beneath my skin, memories before memories. In my first memory, I remember there was a chill wind before the first match was struck. It must have been late in the summer or early autumn, us moving south to chase the warmth. I remember mom's arms wrapped around me, warm skin against my cheek. We sat on a bale of hay and watched Llewellyn construct the pyramid, touch a match to the shaved bark at its center, blow soft and soft until the white smoke curled up through the logs and bloomed until dad was there too. And this is what I remember. Him touching a harmonica to his lips and music like the echoes of a train cutting its horn through the fog at night. And I remember Llewellyn sitting down next to dad and picking up his guitar and adding his music to dad's. The music changing again like water dropping into a bucket. The bucket filling and filling and overflowing. And I remember the warmth of mom's skin and the chill that ran down my own moved down and sighed and danced, and how the music changed again, like a bloom of color radiating from the fire round and warm. And I remember being pulled up into the air, pulled up and up into mom's arms and spun and danced, my body so cradled and safe and how mom sang. And I could feel her singing vibrating into me, her voice resonating through her chest into my ear, and how I closed my eyes and let the world spin, the sound of dad's vibrating harmonica, Llewellyn's picking, sticks popping in the fire, mom's voice deep inside her chest, deep and deep. And I thought, this is how I was made. I thought, this is where I came from, dance and smoke, the steel harmonica. And this feels true. This feels like where I began, where we began, mom and dad and me, the invention of our galaxy. I've held on to this memory as long as I can, but I can't hear their voices anymore, can only see the shapes of them, and I can't reach out and touch my mom's cheek, only feel the warmth of her skin against mine when the memory sparks in my dreams. My memories are made of static and then dissipate if I try to touch them, and I wonder now where the memory goes when it pops, where that life went, wonder if it ever existed or if I shaped it from the fragments of other lives. I am in a waffle house in Staunton, when this memory blooms again. I'm close to Harrisonburg. I'm sitting at the counter. I have a mug of coffee in my hands. I reach down and take what it, gave me from my pocket. it is bigger than I remembered. I hold the heft of it in my hand. It feels heavy and deadly and beautiful there. I turn it over and pinch the clasp, keeping the cl- flap closed and look inside. There are 10 envelopes inside, all wrapped in a rubber band. They are all addressed to me, sent to Rolf's P.O. box in Ocala. I wonder how many letters she sent to dad before she gave up. I flip through the postmark, see them move from Harrisonburg, north and north, and then west. The last one is postmarked Sandusky, Ohio. I've never been to Ohio. If I close my eyes, I can't imagine its smell. Mom's not where I thought, I tell my waitress. How's that, she says. She's right here, I say. You're a strange cookie, aren't you? Can I take that booth over there? And can I get a refill, I say. Of course, she says. I move into the booth, spread her letters out on the tabletop, and open the first one. I can't hear what mom's saying to me that night or see her face anymore.
1: All right, I think I will leave it there.
0: All right.
1: That was incredible, Kevin. I was you. with you throughout.
0: <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> I felt you. like
1: I was one of the characters in the book. <laughs>
0: It's wonderfully written.
1: Thank it you. really, really wow. A couple of questions for you before we go. Sure. What I want to know is, what did you learn about yourself when writing the book? Who are you as a result of writing this book? Oh my. Um, <laughs> um
2: I think I think one of the big things for me is I've always been a big intellectualizer, so mm-hmm. you know I take my experiences and I intellectualize them, you know, um, and Daniel is the exact opposite and he's a feeler. And and so in order for me to be able to write Daniel, I had to get into that space to be a sort of feeler and be present and just, um, be present in the body and feel those emotions. Um, and I feel like he taught me how to do that a little bit better. um, and I think also, just having written the book, um, you learn a lot about um, discipline and routine and ritual in order to get it done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, All right. When I first started writing, I always thought I had failed if I didn't finish a, a story, if I started it, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. a wildly unsustainable way to write.
0: <laughs> um,
2: and um, it really taught me um, this process. … and a set of rituals that I can use to get back into a space over and over again so I can have much smaller ambitions on the day but much bigger ambitions um, for the story as a whole.
1: All right. I want to extend or expand that question just a little bit. Sure. What surprised you most about writing this book?
2: Um first that i could I could finish it, go <laughs> all right <laughs> I know that one <laughs> anything no. else um, i think I think second um the way that um you can hold the way that things can sort of come back like. I didn't do like an like an outline the way that, the way that I sort of like I did this is I used index cards with very mm-hmm. sort of bare bones ideas on the index cards um, but the way that um sort of metaphors and objects and symbols and structures and things like that would click into place without me not necessarily having to plan them beforehand like They weren't necessarily, like, premeditated, but it sort of Mm -hmm. happened naturally, which I thought was a a big surprise. Um, So when I set out to make the sort of, like, circle the center of the metaphor of the book, the way in which just having that focus, um, all sorts of things sort of just happened, just saying, like, this is is how I'm going to, like, think about the story.
1: Um, And that sort of surprised me. Um, Okay. All right. Well, if you had to convince friends or colleagues to purchase The Circle That Fits, what would you tell them? um,
2: I think what I would say to convince um, (laughs) – Hopefully, they'll do whatever the the kindness of to their heart. No, I'm just joking. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: That'll <laughs> do it. That always helps. <laughs> um, I would say it's, it's intense, but it is wonderfully short. So hmm. the intensity is there, and then you can let it go.
1: Um, All right. All right, very nice. Last question. What does literary success look like to you? <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> I feel like I'm already successful because i I get to write um, and every once in a while um someone lets me share my work with the rest of the world um and it's out there um That's all that matters to me that i that I had this privilege of. Telling these stories, and other people find, and it could be fine. you know, maybe it's fine whether mm-hmm. people find some kind of value in it, um, and that makes me happy, and that feels like oh, very job. nice.
1: All right, it's beautiful, beautiful. Where can listeners find your work, my friend? Where
0: can they find um, your book?
2: Um, so um, it's published by Driftwood Press, so you can order directly from them is probably the best way to get the book. It's on pre-order right now. So just go to Driftwood Press um, and go to their shop and you can find it there. Um, Yeah, I think that's the best way to to buy it if you're interested.
1: All right. I know that it's also on Amazon Um, where you can pre-order for October 25th, I believe. All right. How can listeners stay in touch? um
2: So um, I will have a – I'm actually finally getting around to making a website. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I haven't done already. Um, I am on Twitter. So if you want to check me out on Twitter, I'm at Casey Lichty. Um, That's my Twitter handle, Um, which is probably – I'm not super great at social media, but I try. Um, So there we go.
1: All right. All right. What's next for you, Kevin? Where do you go from here in terms of your writing?
2: Right now, I am circling back to um, uh, a novel that I uh, started writing and sort of abandoned because it got stuck. Um, So I'm going to circle back to that. And then I have a few other ideas um, for some stories and another novel um that are that are percolating in my head. So what comes out comes out.
1: <laughs> well I wanna I wanna thank you, Kevin, for joining us tonight. It was an incredible hour. Incredible Ed, thank hour. Thank you
2: for having me. Thank you. It's been yes. kind of a
1: <laughs> Yes, it uh, <laughs> I had a great time. And I'm sure listeners did too. The circle that fits everybody. Go out and buy it. Continue the journey. Well, Kevin, it's time to say goodbye.
2: Goodbye. Thank you.
1: (laughs) All right. And good night to everyone. I'll see you next week on Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.